Selection with Kyra, where you can get the real on today's hot topics. Well, welcome everybody. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Vibe Selection. I am your host, Kyra. And today I have joining me, Robin Stevens joining me today, who's been featured in Sports Illustrated, Women's Sports Illustrated, Today's Show, ESPN, and Spikes, just to name a few. How are you doing today, Miss Robin? Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm doing well. Uh, thank you for having me, Kyra. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So you're from the Bay Area. Tell me a little bit about how life was like for you growing up in the Bay Area. I know it's super expensive to live here now, but like a little bit about how the Bay Area was for you. A couple of years ago. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I actually grew up outside of San Francisco, so closer to Sacramento in Vacaville. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was it's a great place to grow up. Um, Lots of places to train. Um, You know, one of my favorite areas was the Lagoon Lagoon Valley Hills, Uh, you know, camping areas just outside. You know, it's 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 just like a drive away from it's kind of like a farm area. It's called Backaville or Cowtown, you know. So Mm -hmm. um, growing up, you know, obviously I didn't have to pay bills when I was under, you know, 18. So which is um, nice. Yeah. So I wasn't aware of how expensive it was uh, until I moved to San Jose, um, Mountain View. Like I lived a little while in San Jose, Mountain View, Sunnyvale. That's all. That's like right outside of San Francisco. So right there in smack dab in Silicon Valley, um, lived there for 16 years. So I, I ended up there for college. And that's when the reality of the high cost of living, like living in the most expensive area in the entire nation, um, really, uh, really opened my eyes. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Um, so, yeah, it does. Um, the perspective is, you know, even like I moved away from, from Mountain View in 2019. And uh, so I moved there in 2003, moved away in 2019 officially. And I definitely see how my perspective of things is so different, like out how it's been affected by the Silicon Valley and living there for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, now that I'm living elsewhere, mm-hmm. um, for example, uh, uh, just, uh, your expectations of quality is higher. Um, people being diverse in their skills, um, the willingness to work long hours. Uh, it's just, it's, it's just assumed. It's not a decision. <laughs> you mm-hmm. just do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, I think that really helps with discipline and um, you just have a higher, you develop just a higher expectation of yourself and just, um, and, and of others, you know, and, and it's, it's mutual. It's just kind of like you're expecting it from, one another and uh, building something of quality and um, but it can it's also very hard because it's long hours most of us have multiple jobs um, you know one of my good friends that was on the Wolfpack team um, Carolyn you know she's like a doctor and uh, you know it you can't even afford a house out yeah, there. it's insane <laughs> honey, I'm, salad, so. <laughs> yeah I'm from the Bay yeah. born and raised too and that's the first thing for me when I think about the Bay Area I think high cost of living and yep. I think about technology like you don't think about Vacaville small little town with cows no. and all that other <laughs> <No>. stuff <laughs> so. and, and it's very different you know like whether you're in Oakland San Francisco area yeah. or Vacaville that's all Bay Area but they're all very different lifestyles mm-hmm. 
Um, However, all affected by the high cost of living because, um, you know, people who are working in San Francisco and Oakland are going to end up in um, the Vacaville area, Sacramento area, you know, and commute like my dad commuted over 30 years into San Francisco. Um, But the, you know, you couldn't afford a house down there. So then we got a house. Nice. um, In Vacaville. So that's where a lot of people end up. I mean, I know there's people even when while I was living in Mountain View, there was people moving to the Vacaville Fairfield area and commuting into work for Google and Apple. And, um, you know, and if they're not doing that, then, you know, because they're married, you know, if they're married with kids, they're going to end up moving far away and commuting over an hour, sometimes four hours just to get to work. I did that for a while. Um, If they don't have kids. Um, and they're not married, uh, there's like a house, like for example, there's a house called Rainbow Mansion um, that's in Silicon Valley where there's like 20 people living in it, all working for NASA, Apple, Google. They're all making close to six figures or more. And they all got to live together because they can't afford a place place on their own. (laughs) That's crazy. Who would have think? You make it six yeah. figures and you got a roommate with other people, like 20 other people. <laughs> it's yeah, a whole dormitory. Yeah. Like, I remember I got a letter in the mail. Um, I was living in a small shoebox studio apartment in San Jose. And I got a letter. I was making an equivalent to like 45K, which would be comfortable enough living for most college students in, in the Midwest, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but there I got a letter saying that I, I could qualify for low income food stamps, all of this. And I'm like, what? <laughs> but how? <laughs> um, I mean, I was I was meeting my bills and I was I was just barely getting five. So I definitely I didn't need it um, because I, I made sure to, um, you know, I, I was always pretty good about uh you know, just like just scraping by, even as a little kid, I used to save my allowances and just like, you know, like, I don't know. Um, so, but I just was so surprised by that. I was so shocked by that because I just remember I, I am, I had lived for two years in Wisconsin cause I initially went to Wisconsin for college and then transferred to San Jose state. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I was out there, I was making $10 an hour, um, working with, um, children with autism, loved my job, but I lived in a condo with one other roommate. It was a three bedroom condo with a two car garage. And I was able to go out to dinner at least once a day if I wanted, you know? So it's just like, I mean, I was on full scholarship, so that helps. Yeah. (laughs) I wasn't paying for that. So it's like anything I was making for my job was just going towards rent entirely. And I was still able to afford like going out. Which is nice. Yeah. But you go to Bay Area and it's just like Mm -hmm. some of my friends that would come visit me there from, you know, Wisconsin, they would come out there and they were just shocked. Like, oh, how come you guys never go out? Like, oh, how often do you go to San Francisco? And we're like, really not often. One, you know, unless you live in San Francisco, it's kind of a pain in the butt to go to because it just takes forever once you're there to find parking. Mm-hmm. Um, if you use the train system, you still got to walk everywhere and there's like steep hills up and down, which are fine mm-hmm. for health and fitness. But if you need to get to a job on time, it's not always the best either. Yeah. You don't want to show up all sweaty. <laughs> Trucking in in high heels. Up yeah, the hill. walking in high heels, which I've mastered. <laughs> I remember I impressed, uh, I impressed, um, I, I was a, 
Well, I was working at Apple. I also had a job as um, I worked across the street as an executive assistant. And I remember running for a commercial realtor and his daughter had dropped by and he needed to like drop her off somewhere. So he was taken off with her and he forgot an important file that he needed with him. So because after he dropped her off, he was going to go run some errands and um I went running. I had like five inch heels and I went sprinting out and ran, you know, didn't even think about it. Like handed him the file. And she was even like a senior in high school at the time. And she was just shocked. She's like, did you just run 200 meters in five inch heels? I mean, you were sprinting. And I was like, oh yeah, that's just part of the job. Like I didn't think about it. Second nature at this point. Yeah. <laughs> That is so funny. So, okay, you were always athletic as as a child, getting into soccer and dance, and ultimately you decided to get into race walking after watching an elite meet at Stanford University. So what about race walking made you decide you wanted to pursue it? Uh, So in junior high was when I started track and field. And... uh, I had also been, I was immediately successful in it. So I had made junior Olympics, um, Mm -hmm. was introduced to junior nationals, uh, junior worlds and junior Pan Ams and uh, Pan American games. And I was doing so much traveling for that. And I would not have been able to do that if my father didn't work for United and have, um, this is before frequent flyers was um, predominantly like given to just people like you and me. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was prioritized by seniority for people who worked for the airlines. And my dad had been working there for over 20 something years. So um, we had good, this is before 9-11 too. So uh, I was able to fly for like $6 anywhere in the U.S. Um, So that really helped. Otherwise our family couldn't have afforded to send me around. Um, We lost our house when I was two to a fire. Mm. So it was like, you know, my parents are both full-time workers working long hours. um, You know, so it's just like, just to, just to get by and they're super supportive. Um, So I was also dancing. So I had been dancing at the time. I had been dancing since I was two years old. So by the time I was in junior high, I was in competitive dance, um, which means I'm in six different dance classes, which means when we perform, I have six different, very expensive costumes uh, that my parents are paying for. And then I'm playing soccer, which is competitive soccer. I've been playing soccer since I was two. And, um, you know, that that isn't as expensive, but, you know, that's three sports now where I'm I'm needing to get shipped around with. Um, I have an older sister who also played soccer and softball and she was a dancer. So then it's just like my parents are both full-time workers and full-time in the Bay area means not 40 hour work weeks, but 80, mm-hmm. you know? So it's mm-hmm. like, um, but yet they still found a way. I don't think they slept while they were raising us because they still found a way to be at our, our places, but they also had to get us to those places. And mm-hmm. um, and it's expensive, So, which is why getting a full scholarship was really important to me. So I focused on my academics and my sports because anything to just make sure my parents never had to pay for me for college um, uh, because I was just so grateful for this athletic opportunities and the club opportunities that they had made sure I got to do, even though they didn't have a lot of money. And, um, t- you know, it, and they're, it's just so in junior. So how I chose race walk <laughs> mm-hmm. is they had said I needed to pick, 
either track and field or, um, or dance. And I'd already had this just, I was already realizing that I would have to give up soccer soon. Um, people were getting bigger. I was nine, you know, four, nine, um, under a hundred pounds, like, you know, I, I was a great soccer player, but I was not going to be a Mia Hamm. Um, you know, like mm-hmm. I would have gotten pulverized as a professional, you know, I'm not going to be able to do professional level soccer. I'm just too small. Um, <laughs> so, so, uh, so I was already going to have to navigate away from that. And so the decision was, okay, dance or so, uh, track and field, which one's going to get me a full scholarship for the most likely athletically on the athletic side, because academics, I couldn't rely on a full scholarship. I mean, it might be like a 75%, who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, cause I had entered into the honors class system a little late. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so it's just like, okay, well, um, my youth coach, Claudia Wildy at the time, when she approached me, she said, you know, stick with me, I can get you to the Olympics and any college you can dream. And that was oh. all she had to say. Right. My dance instructor had known me since I was six. And because when I was two, that was a different dance instructor from two to six. Um, but my dance instructor, Patty, she had known me since I was six. And not once did she say she could get me into the, okay, prima ballerina, you know, mm-hmm. like the equivalent of the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the reason why I was in dance is because I wanted to be a gymnast, but there was no gymnastics program. I wanted to be a Nadia, the next Nadia Comaneci. So, okay. um, so that was my, that is my athletic inspiration, my entire life, her and Baraj Makov. And so, um, she had never said she could get me to Premier Ballerina Olympics or a full scholarship to any college. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, well, that's a no brainer. I got to choose, I got to choose track and field because I'm already having a lot of success in it. It, it, you know, um, it looks like I could probably get a full scholarship in it. Um, but I really miss dance. I love dance. Like I dance just to decompress. I do it to get rid of lactic acid after um, competitive races. Obviously it's COVID. So I haven't done it in two years, mm-hmm. but um, you know, I want to go to a crowded space, but um, usually I would use dancing to like clear the lactic acid out of the legs and recovery and just decompress. And um, so when I was at Stanford and I saw it and it reminded me of the chorus line, which Marej Makov's in, um, grew up watching that with my mom. Uh, I was like, oh, killed two birds with one stone. Um, I don't have to give up dance after all. So mm-hmm. race walk enabled me to do both running and dance, which are two passions of mine and two things that I did and, and now do again um, to kind of relax my mind. Cause I have always been someone who's just constantly like so much stuff. I don't have a silent, like, I think most women can say this, you know, like I don't, there's never a moment that the thoughts in my head are silent. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> except for when I'm running or dancing, I'm still thinking about things, but I'm thinking about stuff that really bring me joy, like design and all of those types of things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you also do photography too, right? And you model? Uh, yeah. So um, on the side, uh, with COVID, that's kind of... <laughs> I've been really um, playing safe. Nick, Nick Christie and I, um, my boyfriend's also an athlete. Um, we've been limiting who are around um, ever since COVID, the, the pandemic outbreak. But um, yeah, I I enjoy doing anything creative and collaborating with productions. So something, so whether it's lighting, second photographer, um, 
I don't like being the lead. I've been the lead. I don't like the pressure of that, you know, that turnaround of like getting those photos to the, the that's the lead photographer's job. So mm-hmm. I just really like the being the second photographer where I can just be that invisible person on the outside and mm-hmm. um, provide, you know, that extra perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, lighting, um, helping with, uh, so with modeling, um, it's more just uh, for promotional modeling and just supporting like, uh, you know, working with makeup artists, hairstylists, um, any creative that just wants to create something, writers, um, bringing their writing to life and, and, um, with an image. Um, and I've just enjoyed doing that since I was little. Like I, I put together my own outfits. Um, I don't like when people are like, you do cosplay. I'm like, nope, not at all. That's something. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I do fashion design. Um, but it's more like just putting together, using my body as a canvas, um, to display a creation or an idea or a theme. And, um, whether it's inspired by another artist or from a run or from a dance, um, it's, it's usually, that <laughs> that's, that's motivating awesome. so that's how I got into it was it's not like I was pursuing it it's not like mm-hmm. I actively um pursued it it just kind of happened and I think that mm-hmm. happens with a lot of athletes too but um I just sort of was um I was already creating these outfits the photographer saw my Facebook um thought one of my outfits I had put together um was great um so then started having me work with live 105 mix 106 doing events um where I would just they would tell me a theme and then I would come dressed. Uh, however, I was inspired by that theme. That's awesome. So you're the jack of all. There's never a dull moment in your life, like you said, and you always do it. So I've got your hands in every pot. That's awesome, though. Oh, yeah. You know, I like to try to keep myself growing in all aspects. So, yeah, that's awesome. I love learning about other people and like just working with them. And the best way to do that is creating with them. So hmm. Absolutely. So you got your start in race walking in 96, where you walked in the undefeated U-20 National Championship in Santiago, Chile and Kingston, Jamaica. Shout out to Kingston, Jamaica. And in 2000 and 2002, the U-20 World Championship. And you became a nationally ranked distance runner in 1999 at U-20 USA National Championship and went on to become the first and only U-20 USA race walker to win gold at the U-20 Pan American Games in Florida. So tell me about what it was like for you to transition into getting in the championships and going pretty much pros. What was it like for you for your first time? Um, I, and so I kind of had, like at that age, my head was in the clouds. Like I just mm. did stuff because I enjoyed doing it. It wasn't like I was, per, you know, trying to, uh, you know, I just wanted to be the best that I can be and mm-hmm. um, cover my bases is like my whole entire focus was I want to go to I want to get a college degree. <laughs> so, um, but this um, is even better. <laughs> yeah, this is better. Like I did, you know, like watching Nadia Comaneci as a, as a six year old, um, I wanted to go to the Olympics and mm-hmm. it wasn't until I was you know, in 1996, when Claudia was like, I can get you to the Olympics, stick with me. I was like, what? You know, like, I thought you had to be born into that. You can chosen mm-hmm. that kid as a baby, but yeah. um, out of the womb before you've been born. And so it's like, right. okay, cool. So that was, that was way, like, that was really huge for me. Cause I'm like, okay, this, this could happen just to just anybody who's willing to work. Mm-hmm. I, I know how to work. I have mm-hmm. work ethic. So, oh, yeah. um, so I was like, I can do this. So 
Um, Pan Ams was really, it was a surprise. Um, mm-hmm. I was undefeated as an American, but on the international stage, you know, in Kingston and in Santiago, you know, I'm in the middle of the pack towards the back, you know, mm-hmm. so <laughs> and I'm going up against the, the rest of the world. And mm-hmm. so, um, at Pan Ams, I was, came in ranked 12th and I was rooming with, I'm um, trying to remember her name. She was a 1500 meter runner. And I remember like at that point, I only saw myself as a runner who just did dance as like a cross training to, or just did race walks. I even call race walk dance, um, who just did race walk as like a cross training, uh, make sure I don't get shin splints, make sure I don't get injured, keep my flexibility up because I was no longer dancing. The more flexible you are, the faster your turnover. So mm-hmm. I know that, um, running can shorten your muscles. So then you become less flexible. And I was not stretching one to two hours a day anymore. Like you do in dance. And, um, so, um, uh, at that time, like when I came in, it's like, I'm still thinking like a runner, but I'm there to race walk, which I still like totally was just, you know, enthralled with, but I'm, I'm approaching it like a dance. Like this is my time to dance on the track. It's play for me. It's, it's playtime. Mm-hmm. So, um, I still want to, you know, do the best I can, but like, that was all play for me. That was like the, the stressful was the running. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I went out there though, um, there was this girl behind me that started throwing up from Peru and, oh. um, I just gotten these new shoes and <sighs> it's really hard to find shoes back then. Like now we have new feel, um, which is a company owned by Decathlon, which is a European store, um, mm-hmm. who I'm sponsored by now, but they specifically make shoes for race walking. That's a new thing as of like, Ooh. Um, 2017, but back then the only shoes that you could like that were good for race walk were marathon shoes, which, um, they kept changing and it's like the marathon shoes now, like that, the super shoes that everybody's raving about, not good for race walk. Um, those big thick soles that, you know, with the Hoka soles, not good for race walk. Um, mm. but back then it's like the, the Adidas and the Sockenies were like perfect marathon shoes were perfect for race walk. But they were discontinuing the one shoe that I liked, um, the Adidas shoe that I liked race walking in. So I, I bought like as many as I could. Well, we couldn't afford much. So like what I would do is I would do the mile in Sacramento where um, Fleet Foot sponsored the winner. So it's like anytime you won, um, you've got a free pair of shoes from Fleet Foot feet. Nice. So that's how I got my shoes each year. So I would win the mile race walk and the mile run. And so I'd get two pairs of shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how I did it. So I got two of these Adidas shoes and they were all, I had to make them last. And, mm-hmm. um, this girl started throwing up and I didn't want him to get on my shoes. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I just started picking it up. Like I was worried about her, but you know, like I don't want my shoes to get throw up on them. So, um, I just kept picking it up and picking it up and, I'm hard of hearing um, ever since I was little. Um, so I don't know where it's hard for me to know where sa- the directions of sound is coming from. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't sure how close she was. Mm-hmm. Um, all I could hear is this loud retching. So I'm just like, mm-hmm. man, I got to just pick it up and just I just continued to pick it up and pick it up and pick it up. And then like the next thing I know, I come across the finish and in gold and I won. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so it was a total surprise. I remember I was super shy. Like at that time, 
I did not, I was not comfortable with a spotlight on me. And some people thought that was really weird because they're like, well, you're a dancer, like the spotlight's like right on you. As soon as the recital starts, all the lights go out and all the attention's on the dancers. Right. Mm-hmm. But, um, and since I was one of the smallest on the dance team, I was usually one of the, you know, the lucky ones that got to be lifted up and have like the cool parts, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but you can't see the audience. They're, mm. they're pitch black, you know, like it's, it's dark. And so I don't know if you dance, you know, so it's like, if you're in a recital, like you, you don't see what's out there. So, mm. um, so when I was on the podium, like I was, I had so much trepidation, like, uh, you know, like even at the nationals, you know, um, I was super shy. I was glad that, that they didn't like interview race walkers as deeply as they do sprinters. And, mm. um, I remember looking out and seeing the tears in my coach's eyes at the time, Uh, parents. And then she afterwards, she asked me, she's like, what was going through your head? Like, and I was like, all I could think about is I didn't want to throw up on my (laughs) (laughs) shirt. I love that. Everybody's thinking you're just trying to win the goal, which, uh, you know, of course you are. But at the same time, you're just trying to get away from this chick behind you who's yakking everywhere. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that you know, is so funny because she still finished so. yes yes kudos kudos <laughs> so okay what is the training process like for a race walker going into these big competitions like the olympics and stuff what's that like uh training's just the same as race walk um we're mm-hmm. just race walking the workouts so mm-hmm. um uh I, I've mentioned this before, like um, race walk involves all the muscles. That's what I really love about it. Um, it's using the same muscles that a sprinter uses, a middle distance person uses and a distance athlete. So mm-hmm. that's what I love about it because that's also what um, dancers will be using. Dancers are going to be using a lot and like, they're going to be using more of like a distance and middle distance, um, you know, muscle musculature, but um that's what I love about it. So we're going to be doing similar workouts as like anywhere between a mid distance runner and, um, a distance runner. Mm-hmm. Um, but with some days we're going to like, I had to get used to this with my new coach, um, Jacinto Garzon, he's a Spanish coach, but I was never used to long rest, like the sprinters use, you know, where mm-hmm. you're resting longer than 30 seconds or longer than a minute for the longer intervals. Like, why are you, why are we standing around for five to 10 minutes? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, so like I had to get you like Nick was making funny because he come from a sprinting background, but um, yeah, for, for getting the speed for like the three K cause our distances are between, well, the mile for high schoolers. We don't really do a lot of miles as, as a, once you get out of high school, but um, the three K is at indoors. It's probably going to change. to five K, you know, used to be five K went to three K. Now it's probably going to change back to five K, but for mm-hmm. that's a sprint for race walking. That's, that's like doing a hundred meter to 400 meter sprint. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have, you know, the Olympic distance is 20 K used to be 20 K and 50 K for the men. Now it's 20 K and 35 K for men and women at worlds um, going into 2022. France will probably have like a relay, a four by five relay and a 20 K. So you want, we want to have that endurance plus the speed of a turnover because our turnover is going at the rate of an 800 meter runner. Um, so the training is, is just, um, we do a lot of mileage, really high mileage mm-hmm. and really short speed, um, with like, um, depending on what the time of year, then we're going to be doing, um, speed work that's similar to like a 5k runner so we're going to be doing repeat we do everything in k's not miles so it's like repeat 
two Ks are like basically two repeat miles, repeat or three Ks, um, repeat three Ks is like two miles. So like, um, you know, repeat five Ks or we're doing repeat 500s um, because 500 meters because we do K circuits. So Mm -hmm. that's why we don't do 400s. So um, it's just pretty similar. I mean, the only difference is like any, like whenever I hear like coaches like, oh, I want to, I want to incorporate race walk, but I don't know how to, it's like, it's the same program you're having your, your runner athletes do. You just got to learn how to race walk so and teach them to race walk and once they learn this technique um they can do it i mean in high school i didn't even train for race walk except for like maybe a week before world juniors um i would maybe race walk every day but i hardly hardly did any race walking um it was entirely running you're gonna get because you know we're not doing anything more than like a 10k a mm-hmm. 10k is a lot for runners. Um, you know, it's a distance event for runners for sprint for race walks. A 10k is like an 800 meter. It's, it's short. So, um, yeah. Um, I just think like the training is like, all you have to do is learn the technique. Um, once you're in college, yeah, you want to focus, switch your focus more to race walking primarily because the 20k is a whole different ball game. Um, mm-hmm. that you're going to need the endurance of like a marathoner. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, but before that in high school, college, even depending, um, cause I think college, like, I think there's just too much emphasis on NCAA and NAIA. Like, I, I think that college should be spent focused entirely on career and, um, your academics for like career placement. Um, mm-hmm. and then you're using the sport to just keep yourself fit so that once you, um, graduate college then you can focus on olympics and world championships and be at your best you know um but i do think college is the best time to just focus on like your academics and career um pursuits um using your athletics to fuel that and to pay for that you know if you're on scholarship and then and then just invest in yourself for after you graduate um i just think that's the the smartest way to do it otherwise i just think um there's just too much immaturity going and um we can't handle it you know like we're already starting something new when we leave high school we're going out of our safety you know our comfort you know that small little world of just our high school friends that we knew and community and then you know whoever raised us our parents or whoever who was our you know whoever was raising us and everybody has our you know their biological parents raising them so like whoever it is um you know, you leave that comfort, you go into college or you go into work life, whatever it is. And it's a whole different atmosphere and, and, and it takes a transition. And so I think like if you're starting to focus too much on some other things, mm-hmm. um, you can't really handle it or you can't handle the you're not mature enough yet to handle like, you know, athletics. It, it's no longer a play thing once it gets to college in, mm-hmm. and after college. That's a job. And, yeah. you know, yeah. if you're getting paid like I, that was my job. I was paid as a full time athlete in college. That's my job. Um, so, yeah, I need to perform and make sure I'm, I'm doing well. But I also want to make sure that um, my bases are covered, too. A race walker is not paid like Allison Felix. You know, like mm-hmm. we're <laughs> we make like at most if we're winning all the races because we're only paid by prize purses and we're only there's only three races that race walkers in the u.s get prize purse for it's not we're not included in the diamond league so we don't get those payment opportunities we're hoping to change that but um we're basically making less than 20k a year um that's if you're winning so if you're you know silver or bronze you're making less than that you know so um you know, so focus on the career. I mean, that's the same thing with, um, if you're not a gold medalist thrower, if you're not a goal, you know, 
Um, you're not Kovacs, you know, you're not, you're probably not, you know, you're not Diana Prince, you know, you're not making <laughs> or Michelle mm-hmm. Carter, you're mm-hmm. not making enough to like make a living. So mm-hmm. I just think that in college, you got to focus on all your career bases. So yeah, you're being paid to do well there, but do well, but also focus like the academic should be that priority because that's what it's paying for. You know, mm-hmm. and that I mean, in, in, in that case, if you're not really making that much money off of it, then it starts to be a passion if you're just pursuing it wholeheartedly, because like you said, you know, with race walking, you know, it's less than twenty thousand dollars a year. So focusing on your academics is important because, like you said, you can get further in life, but don't stop your passion, but just have like a backup plan for yourself. Yeah, yeah. yeah have that backup plan, because once you're out of college, like my whole thought processes and I stepped away from sport for 12 years. So this also helped me have a different perspective because the, the athlete that I was in call, like going into college and in college is completely different. The, the person I am, the athlete I am now is like a completely different, I think it's a far healthier perspective. Mm-hmm. And it was being able to step out and step to, and stepping back in to be able to really see the full picture of things and, and the professionalism of it and how to approach it and how to balance it with, um, other life pursuits and, um, you know, survival. So, mm-hmm. um, so I think that when you focus on, when you have that backup plan and, but without giving up your passion, um, you can figure out ways to make a living. You just have to be creative about it, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think every athlete, uh, should take a financial class, um, you know, or if they don't have the attention span for that, then, you know, work, I know Lauren Williams, a retired, um, sprinter, you know, Olympic medalist, she, she provides financial services. I actually was studying to be a um, certified financial planner right before I came back to the sport. Mm-hmm. And I think that really helps because it, it helps athletes kind of understand athletes and artists. I recommend this to artists too, especially in, you know, a lot of people in LA, you know, like, mm-hmm. just, you know, like it just helps so that, um, the choices that we make, um, it helps support that we, so that we can better pursue our passions without putting ourselves in these like financial stresses. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to be millionaires, but necessarily, but you know, like never, you know, so it's like, mm-hmm. like it's how to like make a living. So financial class is like really important. And then, um, San Jose state had this really good program. I don't know if they still have it, but it was creative leadership. So I actually have a major in creative leadership, which is helping, mm-hmm. um, using what assets you have and what skills you have to mm-hmm. better market yourself. So, um, once you have that degree, once you get out of college, I think like, yeah, when you're in, um, um, something like acting or um, race walk or running where you're not making the the really good, um, you know, distance running where you're not making the same amount of money as like a sprinter or, um, you know, you're not with Nike. So like, yeah, distance runners who are with Nike, they're going to have like a big uh, paycheck. So um mm-hmm like, you know, bigger, they're making like at least 50 K. So, mm-hmm. um, which is a living wage, um, if they move to Arizona. So mm-hmm. <laughs> like if they move out of California, right. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, so I don't know. Um, I just think it's really good to cover your bases. And then if you mm-hmm. can do that, then you can more creatively navigate how to live, um, make your athletics, 
you're a profession that you can survive on balancing Mm -hmm. that with a backup plan, um, with other things. So like the, you know, like the commercial modeling I, I do and the, and all that, like I, I do make money doing that. You know, when I, I help, um, when I go on set for things, um, I'm making money doing that. Uh, I don't do it for free. So, mm-hmm. um, and just, yeah, you learn your value, you know, mm-hmm. you got to just, and then be confident in that. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And then it's, it's taking what you're earning and putting it back into your passion. So that way you're able to achieve greater heights, you know, for you, yeah. it's being able to afford, you know, get the money that you need in order to compete in the Olympics and stuff like that. And all the expenses that come along with that, the travel, the shoes, the clothes, whatever, you know, all of yeah. that is taken care of. And that's uh, all like, I wouldn't have been able to do it if I didn't have um, USATF um, Pacific Foundation. It's um, it's separate from, so there's two grants that um, track and field athletes can apply for, um, well, that live in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Um, the Pacific Association is just for the Bay Area athletes only, but there's, um, it was founded by George Kleeman, who was in law and legislation. He had a background in that. So he really felt like um, more, there's a lot of really strong athletes that come out of California mm-hmm. and um, that they we needed more support because there was a high amount of, you know, expensive living there. Mm-hmm. Um, so he created the USATF Pacific Foundation, um, which is a grant that um, Northern California athletes can apply for. And um, and then there's the USATF Foundation, which is the national, although anybody in the nation can apply for that. And, um, and without those, I think it'd be really hard for... Um, for athletes who are either returning to the sport or just getting into the sport, um, who don't already have like big sponsors like Nike. Unfortunately, like USATF foundation sometimes still grants like people with big endorsements through Nike and Adidas and Puma and stuff. But, um, for athletes, like that aren't sponsored by big money by that. And, you know, like those grants really do help if you're good with, um, finance and good with, um, you know, being very living very conservatively um, because they're not big grants, but they help. And then Mm -hmm. um, I feel really fortunate for having sponsorship. It started with Skechers and then I went with, you know, Salming supported me for a couple of years. And then now for the last couple of years, I've been with Decathlon, which is a French based company. Decathlon has been remarkable. They take care of Nick and I incredibly. Um, We're not... um, so, you know, we're not paid in like a, like, like a salary, like we don't get cash. Um, so it's not like we can pay rent, but, um, or like a mortgage, but, um, they supply us with any equipment that we could possibly need and really got us through the pandemic. And, um, that really helps. Like nice. we have our own home gym, you know, with, wow. Olympic level, like weights that are super cheap. Like you go on the decathlon and it's like, this is ridiculous. The, the founder of decathlon just really wants sports accessible to everybody. Mm-hmm. So you go on their website and you like, you see like these weights that are like over a hundred dollars everywhere else or over $80. And they're, they're super inexpensive because they just want health and fitness accessible to everyone. It's just, awesome. it's just ridiculous. But yeah. So like without those, like endorsements and sponsorships and stuff. And I think like knowing how to be, show your gratitude really helps. Um, so yeah, just mm-hmm. harnessing, remembering where you came from, remembering that like, this is a, an opportunity and people are believing in you. And so mm-hmm. keep that in mind. Um, 
because it can all disappear and, and it wouldn't be possible without those sponsorships, without those grants, without, you know, parents or friends letting you crash on their couch or live in their house for a while while you're playing yeah. like, Olympic dreams. Most <laughs> of us are doing that, you know? Yeah. And that can only ha- go on for so long. It can and, only go on for so long. Yeah. And you know, it's depending on what type of sport you get into, like you, how you're saying about having a backup plan. I know for the longest time when it came to basketball and football, the kids graduating from high school, going into college basketball or football at the D1 level, a lot of them were not getting paid. You know, a lot of the coaches and the schools are making money off these guys and they weren't able to even accept sponsorships if they got any sort of money from social media with, you know, like Instagram and all the videos that they would make, you know, how people get popular and go viral and then they get all these other opportunities coming for income. They weren't even able to accept that. It wasn't until recently where they actually passed a law where a lot of these students and athletes, student athletes are able to make money off of sponsorships. I mean, yeah, crazy. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's not just football. And I mean, that gives perspective. Mm-hmm. But that was all of us athletes on full scholarship in college or just walk ons like we are. We're not getting paid, but we're, you know, when you have like the Sydney McLaughlin's and, the, you know, Delilah Muhammad's and, you know, like they're they're making money for you know, Pratadini, you know, they're making money for their colleges, but they're not getting that money until they get out of college, mm-hmm. you know, like, because everybody else, like the college is making bank off of them. Mm-hmm. Um, they're making bank off of us, you know, like any mm-hmm. of us. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that's changed because yeah. it does make it hard too, because I remember when I was in college, it was like, I never knew, I like, well, will I get in trouble if I do this race because it has prize money. And even though I don't accept it, there was like some kind of clause back then where it's like, if you're in a race that offers prize money, it could take your scholarship away. It was like, it was really weird. It was like, uh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's sad because, you know, these poor kids are eating oodles and noodles in their dormitories while these coaches are eating steak and lobster and getting rich off of these people. My fridge was empty. All I had (laughs) was plain pasta. I remember like one of my friends came over for, I never hosted. This is probably why I still don't host um, people at my house for food because like growing up, like, or, you know, in college I had pasta and I could not afford to put anything on it. So I flavored it with pepper or butter, you know, because there was just like nothing I couldn't afford. Like, like it was too much of a luxury to afford sauce because it could go rotten. I couldn't eat it fast enough, you know? So, um, that's sad. And you know, (laughs) like I had, (laughs) yeah, it was like my, my, my cupboards were empty. Like I lived on rice and pasta and then like, I had a, I had developed an eating disorder. So then it was just like, okay, well, um, for a while, all I was eating was, well, I was drinking coffee, black, black coffee. So there's like no calories in that. And then, um, except for the sugar I added. And then um, usually you could get black coffee for free from the cafeteria. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had ice cream sandwiches because they were a thousand calories each. And I was wow. like, okay, well, the 7-Eleven had two for $3 sandwiches you know so Mm -hmm. I was like well I can only afford I can't afford groceries Mm -hmm. so um and my car was sometimes it'd break down so it's not like I could um get to it was hard because like where I lived I lived across from Duncan Hall um in San Jose and it's like I had to back out of my the driveway was really narrow and it was like kind of dangerous as you're backing out into like you know traffic Mm -hmm. and then um 
I was by like a lot of halfway houses too. So like, I didn't want to hit anyone because like there's people walking around and like, mm-hmm. so it was like, it's really nerve wracking. So I, I hardly ever wanted to drive anywhere. So any groceries I got needed to be walking distance and care. I needed to be able to carry them. And, and so the, my solution was to pay $3 a day for 2000 calories a day, which was not wise because my only nutrient source of nutrients are, are ice cream and cookies. Oh man, the sugar diet. <laughs> yeah. With occasional pasta, if I was able to get to the grocery store and buy a whole bunch of dollar pasta. <laughs> With some butter, butter noodles. Butter, yeah. <laughs> so, so I know a lot of athletes are stuck doing something similar. So. Yeah. Hey, they have no choice. These uh, colleges don't want to pay them or give allow them to be able to get a source of income in, you know, making yeah. money off sponsorships. You got to do what you got to do, you know? Yep. You got to make what work work. <laughs> yep. Make it work. So you speak very candidly about how in high school you struggle with an eating disorder and dealing with the growing pains of puberty um, that led you to step away a little while from sports for 12 years. And you were you were diagnosed with um, athletes triad. I believe I'm saying that right. And you qualified for 2004 in the 2016 Olympic trials, but were unable to do so due to an Achilles injury that that was caused by the eating disorder. Um, for those who aren't familiar with Athletes Triad, could you give a little bit more background into that and, you know, discuss a little bit further into how you developed this eating disorder and how you were ultimately able to overcome it? Um, so it wasn't actually Athletes Triad that I was diagnosed with. I just used that as a, so I had a, I have, I had disordered eating. Um, so it was a combination. I don't even think there's a name for what I had because it was a combination of bulimia, um, with some, some instances of anorexia. Um, but I'm not anorexic cause I wasn't, um, I wasn't intentionally depriving myself of calories. Um, but I would go without because either I can't afford or the food. Or, yeah. Walking, yeah. Um, the yeah. car situation. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, or I was doing at the time that I was in college, um, it was brand new that they had excessive training, which is part of the athlete triad of like where you're just constantly running or in the gym or doing anything you can to keep yourself moving. You're not sitting down. And that was what I was doing. I was I was standing while I was writing my essays. I had a little like stand up bar in my tiny little studio um, that I would stand. I would either be sitting on a medicine ball or standing so that I would be burning more calories than if I was sitting and then constantly just I would run, I was no longer running to get fast. I was just running to lose weight. So um, that's part of athlete triad. So it's like where they're just constantly just running, 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 running. Um, You're not giving your body or like doing something active. So I was doing like those beach body um, workouts as well as the training with the college, as well as um, for a while I was personal training. So then I would go in early and do an extra strength session there. Um, So, and then I was running at like four in the morning at midnight, just so that I could like lose the pounds from the ice cream sandwich diet that I was on. And like, this is in college that I had the eating disorder. Um, um, so, uh, it was, so athlete triad, it's like, I can't, um, that also involves like, so if you don't have the right nutrients, it causes like you lose your period and then the osteoporosis, you know, like it causes, so I don't have that. Like, um, 
my genetics is that we ha- tend to have osteoporosis. So <laughs> that's just in my genetics. So um, I was diagnosed with disordered eating because there really isn't like a thing, a name for what I was going through. Um, I, I would binge eat and then, um, and then starve myself and then, or run because like, like just do as much activity as possible and not sit still Um, Mm -hmm. just so that I could the best way that I could like burn calories. Um, I was also accumulating a lot of work because uh, weight, because I wasn't sleeping. Um, I was taking 21 to 26 credits per semester Mm -hmm. and I wanted to make as I wanted to I like milked the entire, I, I wanted to get as much as possible out of my scholarship. So I wasn't messing around. I took as many classes as I possibly could. I wanted as much education as I possibly could get. Anything I was interested in, I took that class. And um, I wanted, I was also being competitive with my cousin who had, who had graduated with three degrees. So I wanted five degrees. And little did I know that San Jose State doesn't let you reuse credits for, for degrees which doesn't make sense because it's the same education. But um, so I was going for five degrees so that I could be, you know, five Olympic rings, five degrees. And then that would also beat my cousin who had three from BYU. And so, um, so I was like secretly wanting that. So like I was taking a ton of credits and um, not sleeping. So I'm an art major too. So one of my, my degrees is art. And that means a lot of, um, outside class time. So you're not just in class for an hour and a half. You have a four hour slot of where you need to be creating these things. And um, it's mandatory. So for the credits and stuff. So I was getting maybe three to four hours of sleep a night, pulling all nighters every Sunday, because I also would work at Costco in the morning um, for a while I was either, so it was either after practice, I would go and personal train. I was personal training at Valley total fitness mm-hmm. in San Jose. And, um, but quit that job. Once I realized I had an eating disorder and so many people were saying they wanted to be just like me, like a lot of my clients. And I'm like, no, you don't like, I'm not healthy right now. So I need to step away so I can get healthy and, and be a better example. Um, so then I started working at Costco in the morning because I didn't want to lose muscle. So I was working the the pharmacy aisle and, and what that involves is you're stocking, like I would stock the pharmacy aisle before Costco opens. And then I would work behind the pharmacy um, bar Mm -hmm. Um, and calcium is like boxes of calcium is, is far heavier than people think. Like just Mm -hmm. go to Costco and lift up, like just lift one of those big boxes and you'll see that like, it's pretty heavy. So like I did that on purpose. So, um, now try, imagine lifting all those boxes for four hours every morning, you know, on three hours of sleep. So I did that to, as my strength training, since I was no longer at the gym. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, um, so it was all like getting my squats in and, you know, as I, as I lift up the box and like, I don't know, it was really ridiculous. Like every decision I made in college was like, either like it was for professional reason or like fitness reason Mm -hmm. (laughs) while I'm trying to battle this eating disorder. Um, so it's like really weird because it's like, I'm, I'm conscientious of this problem I have while also trying to be healthy about it. Um, so I was not sleeping. So then when you don't sleep, your metabolism slows down. And so like I'm gaining weight, even though I'm not you know, even though I have restricted calorie intake, um, you know, like, or I look puffy, like I look really big. So, um, yeah. Um, so to get out of it, I had to step away. (laughs) So that's how I got healthy is I stepped away from athletics 
because um, in college there's, you know, the coaches are more focused on you as a number. They don't care about you as a person in general. Mm. Um, um, The good coaches are um, usually just, they just have too many athletes to really pay attention to what's going on in your personal life. Mm -hmm. So um, they mean well, but they just can't give you that attention that you need to, to, to protect your health. So um, that was the experience I had at San Jose state. um, And, in Wisconsin, that coach was just terrible. San Jose, the guy was super nice. Augie's super nice guy. Um, but you know, it's not like he, he could really pay attention to what's going on in our personal life. So, um, and I think that's just happening a lot to a lot of athletes, male and female that go to college. Um, there's just, it's just not the way things are geared. I mean, it's it's actually similar to professional life, you know, like when you work in the corporate world, um, you have the bottom line that you have to meet in these deadlines that the focus is all on that. And you kind of forget about health, you know, and wellness, um, kind of takes a backseat. So for me, um, in college, I realized it was just not no longer a healthy environment for me to um, be in that situation, mm-hmm. um, to be in, in athletics, because there's just too many fixated on their weight, like my teammates, like one, one of my teammates had revealed to me that she had an eating disorder, had, mm-hmm. you know, she wanted, she had come to me as uh, I was like, you know, in a team captain kind of type role. So she had confided in me, didn't know I had a problem. And so, um, you know, it's like just being around people who are just constantly talking about their weight and their appearance. You know, it's also like college is where a lot of young women think that they're going to meet their husbands and life partners or wives, you know, whoever um, their their life partners and get married. And so they're like really focused on their appearance because unfortunately we, we live in a culture where women have to focus on our appearance, we mm-hmm. think, you know, to, to get a partner. Yeah. So it's just like, you know, like I didn't want to be around that. I wanted to just step entirely away from it, throw myself into my art and creativity and professional life um, and just making sure that I can um, survive. And, and, you know, I'm in Silicon Valley, so it's like pay my rent. Um, uh, So I navigated into exploring other interests and goals that I had. and stepped entirely away from the sport so that I can just clean slate, remind myself why, because the whole reason why I was in sports because of the health and fitness aspect of it. And then when it was no longer, now it's hurting me, it's hurting my health. I'm injured with an Achilles injury, you know, um, that's not healthy. So it's mm-hmm. like, I'm not even like, if I want to go, you know, I wanted to go to the Olympics, the whole Olympic, the, what draws drew me to the Olympics as a kid was what can the body do? Like, what can you achieve in the most, like the athletics is supposed to help you achieve the most, like the epitome of health and wellness. That was what I, I see it as. And that's how I see it. So it's like, if I can't accomplish going to the Olympics healthily, then what was the point of the goal? Like it's, it's, a, it's a false, it's a false accomplishment. Mm-hmm. So I want to do it. You know, I want to do it right. So I, uh, stepped away so that I could get healthy and it worked, you know, like I didn't think I was going to return because I had actually started seeing athletics as very unhealthy mm-hmm. um, because of, but I realized that's actually more of the college mindset of, of athletics um, and high school mindset. Um, and, you know, like, I think there's too much pressure on people to go pro out of high school. I think that's really ridiculous. Um, you know, um, because of, like the whole maturity thing we're we're still young. I mean, 21 sounds like an adult, but we're not, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I just think it's really good to, um, 
sometimes step out so that you can step back in healthy. And when I returned in 2000, officially I returned in 2016, but technically I returned in 2014 at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it was entirely because I was diagnosed with anxiety disorder in 2009 and um, I had been self-managing, but then my my golden retriever, April, who's like my, my fur baby, um, mm. <laughs> he was diagnosed with cancer, with lymphoma in 2014. And I had imagined I would have her for at least seven years. Cause I was told golden retrievers, um, have a tendency to have hip dysplasia and like get cancer. So the average is seven years, but you can get, you can have them as long as 14 years. So I was just hoping for at least seven years. I did not expect I was going to lose her in five years. Mm. And I had just, I would tell her, you know, like, you know, we're going to get a, we're going to get our own place someday. Don't worry. Cause we're in a small little apartment and she's a big dog who's athletic, you know? And so I was like, we're going to get this. So when I found out she was, she had cancer, I just threw everything into her chemotherapy and, um, I got really depressed and like my anxiety got out of control. Um, I started having panic attacks regularly while driving, um, which made me feel like my life and other people's lives are at risk because I'm like freaking out um, mm-hmm. in the middle of traffic. It wasn't while I was driving, driving. It's usually like if I'm stopped at a stoplight for too long or in traffic where I can't be like, I was commuting from Fremont at the time into Santa Clara. Mm-hmm. So that Oakland traffic of, um, you know, like a half hour drive was like more like a, two-hour drive yeah it's crazy not, yeah it's like LA like no, yeah. no like not moving and that causes anxiety for me so mm-hmm. it just got out of control and um I was pulling long hours because I had three different jobs I was doing the freelance um photography and, and graphic design at the time I was pulling a lot of all-nighters um for the graphic design work um while working at um CTO forum, which was a, which is a company that puts on these huge like events for CEO, CIOs. They're like think tanks, you know, mm-hmm. where, um, big R and D people. And so I was pulling a lot of hours for that because I did graphic design for them and their marketing. So, and their publications. So, um, uh, I just, my anxiety just got out of control. So I, I was one late night. I, the same athlete that had been my teammate, um, at San Jose state had, who had confided in me. Um, she's also a graphic, she's a designer. Um, mm-hmm. so she did graphic design, she's the best artist I know that's my age. And, um, she also does like footwear and stuff. Um, but super talented person. I just totally like, I, she's a remarkable person. Um, mm-hmm. but we were both staying up late on our project and she recommended I come out for the Wolfpack running club just to run once a week, just to get my mind off of all the stresses of barely getting by in Silicon Valley, trying to pay rent, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, I know the struggle. <laughs> yeah. And favor my, my dog's chemo. Mm-hmm. And, um, so that's when I started getting, you know, just running, um, just for the community, just to, have a social life because other, if I didn't have that Wolfpack running club, like my social life was, I mean, I was working so many hours. I couldn't see my friends. My, my hanging out with my friends was text messaging, you know, because we are all working long hours. None of us have time to actually hang out. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, 
like, uh, you know, like, and then at CTO forum, I had my own office where I had so much work to do. Cause I also helped them with their sales because they weren't meeting their quota. So and I'm, you know, I was pretty good at sales because I was a Girl Scout, you know, like growing up selling cookies. So like, mm-hmm. um, so they would have, pull me in every time, anytime they needed their quota met. Um, so I was just balancing so much that um, that that social outlet just reminded me of it reconnected me to why I had um, started running in the first place. And um, so I was running and uh, just using it for that mental clarity and just the community. And then um, in March of 2014, I hit my head and got a concussion and it was, it caused a four month long static migraine. So what that meant was I could no longer run, um, while I was healing, I wasn't allowed to cycle, which a lot of the Wolfpack team are triathletes. So like they'll cycle and, um, they're marathon, they're primarily a marathon group. So they do marathons and, um, usually if they're injured, they do swimming, but I wasn't allowed to swim. So there was all these things I wasn't allowed to do while I let my head heal. And, um, I felt like I just turned 30. I felt like my body was prematurely like aging. So I asked my doctor, is there anything I can do? And she remembered I was a race walker. And so she's like, well, race walking is low impact. Um, you can try that after four months, um, try it for 20 minutes, unless you get a static, unless you get a migraine, um, before the 20 minutes is over. Um, you know, as soon as you get that migraine stop, cause that means the brain's swelling. Um, so I, uh, that's how I got back into race walk was purely because I needed something to, to allow my body to move. I didn't want to prematurely age my body at only 30 years old. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so then, uh, I, so I just did that just for fitness. And then I got into a race and with that one race that I did, it was my second 20 K ever. My first 20 K in 12 years, Um, uh, I qualified for the 2016 Olympic trials. So it was just like, okay, well, (laughs) I guess my body's not done. And this is the sign from the universe that I have unfinished business that I kind of felt like I had, but, um, that, that was like my, my huge wake up call. So it was kind of like, I literally had to hit my head to like realize. <laughs> right. <laughs> literally. <laughs> yeah. So that's how I got back into it. And then I made a deal with my, um, the person who started coaching me. She was a good friend with the coach of Wolfpack. Her name's Susan Arminta. She was actually my role model. Um, she was the U S race walker. When I was a, under 20, she was, um, you know, the open level. So like Olympic level world level. Um, she had the best technique, the most beautiful technique. She was not the number one in the nation. She mm-hmm. was like number three, but she, what she, she still like has the best technique any American race walker I've ever seen. Um, so I just totally, and she's humble. She's, uh, she's like, she's like a sister to me now. She's like, um, but at the time I, when I was, when I was a youth, I looked up to her so much and she had no idea because I was super shy mm-hmm. and she was friends with the coach of Wolfpack and Wolfpack was like, Oh, well, I don't know if you know this Susan Armenta, but I know the race walk community is really small. So if you guys don't know each other, we pretty much know each other by name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, um, so I was like, yeah, I know who she is. I looked up to her and she's like, well, she's a friend of mine. Um, let me see if she's interested, but if she like, if she would coach you, would you, cause she's like, I don't know anything about race walk. So, um, but if she would coach you, would you, be willing. And I was like, are you kidding me? If my like 
idol from <laughs> when I was a kid was willing to coach me. And I, she not only my idol because she was so good at race walking, she was an idol because she's so humble and she's approachable and she's just such a good all around person. And then it's not like the only thing she could do. Like she's, mm -hmm. she's a Jack of all trades person as well. Mm -hmm. So, um, she takes care of her family and it's like, uh, so it's like when she gave me that call and she said like, Hey, you know, like, I think, um, you know, you're a sub 130 girl. Um, if you want, I'm willing to coach you. And she was living in San Jose at that time. Um, it's like, yeah, that's a no brainer. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm returning full-time to race walk. So that's how I switched from full-time runner in college to full-time race walker. Wow. Uh, as if, you know, someone I looked up to is going to invest her time in me. I'm going to invest in my entire time into the discipline she's an expert at. Mm -hmm. And become an expert myself. So, um, that's where I switched from runner to race walker and, um, that the rest is history. Like <laughs> she, I made a promise to her that, um, or she made a prom, she made me promise her. And then that, that carried over to Nick when we started dating. Um, he, I had him keep, help me keep that promise I made to Susan. And that is as soon as the athletics becomes where it's obsessive or mm -hmm. it's controlling my thinking in an unhealthy way, I need to step away. Yeah. Um, so, um, so far it's like, it's been pretty healthy. Um, that's awesome. <laughs> so now when, as you were getting healthy again, after you took some time away, did you also have to attend therapy? What were some of the outlets that you used to overcome your eating disorder? And what would you say to someone else who is dealing with an eating disorder right now? And they don't know how to, you know, step to get healthy again. They want to, but I know how it is a really common challenge for a lot of people in the world that deal with eating disorders, because like you said, you see, you know, society tells you you're supposed to look a certain way and that's not everybody's reality. You know, everybody comes in different shapes and sizes. So what would you say to someone that is dealing with an eating disorder that's trying to get back healthy again? I would say don't be afraid to reach out for help because I think that's one of our biggest challenges is, yeah. is asking for help. Um, also trust your intuition. I, I listened to your last episode and like, we all have it, you know, like I was like, yeah, girl, yeah. like we do, we yeah. all have it and, um, trust it, you know, like you, like most of us know we have, a problem or a challenge or something. And, um, but we're afraid to, and we know what we need to do, but we're afraid. It's almost like we need permission. So I'm giving you that permission to mm -hmm. ask for that help or give yourself, give you, I'm giving permission to give yourself the permission to just reach out and just do like, once you prioritize what you need to do for your overall fitness and for your wellness, it doesn't matter what other people think, because all that matters is is what you need to do to, to get healthy again. And when you do that, it's, you know, life improves and, um, things get easier. It's not quick. It's not like this overnight thing. Um, but re use the resources that are available. Um, I've used talk therapy. Um, I've talked to, you know, um, it didn't really help with the eating disorder, talking to a professional therapist, because I feel like it helped more talking to a friend 
um, friend, um, someone I, you know, a trusted mentor. Um, my mom is incredible. So I'm very close with my mom. So I talk to her about everything. I mean, she probably, she knows things about me. Most parents probably don't want to know about their kids, you know, like mm-hmm. I talk to her about everything and I trust her and my best friend, like I was able to talk to her about it. Um, so, and then I did have professional help to wear like there, I went to Kaiser um, my doctor had me see the Kaiser. They, they have a program for people with eating disorders, also with anxiety disorders, um, um, all disorders. They have this group therapy program um, that she suggested for me. And so I went there for both the eating disorder and um, anxiety disorder. But you're in this this group with other people with other things. You know, it's like they're not just like some of them are in there with um panic. Some of them are with that. They're agoraphobic, um, all, you know, depression. Um, there's all different. And so like you really get the sense of community with other people and you realize it's really normal. It's not abnormal. Um, we all have struggles. We're all going, if you know, if you don't have struggles right now in your life, you're lying to yourself or you're going to, so get you ready, you know, Um, part of life. Yeah. None of us are going to get through unscathed. Yeah. And so, um, so don't be afraid to ask, don't be afraid to reach out to, to ask the experts, um, talk to your friends. Um, the ones you can't talk to, you realize those aren't your real friends, you know, mm-hmm. keep them at arm's length. That doesn't mean banish them from your life, but you can keep them at arm's length, you know, mm-hmm. um, everybody, everything like can serve a purpose. And, um, but really like, trust that intuition. And, um, that's what I did. I knew I needed help and I knew that the best thing for me was to step away so that I can just really focus on putting my health first. And Mm -hmm. when you, you know, I had a boss one time tell me like the healthier you are, the healthier you can keep your loved ones. Mm -hmm. Um, because without your own health, you can't, you can't be there for your loved ones. So in order to take care of others, you have to take care of yourself. (laughs) Absolutely. Self comes first. And and you were actually, and you went on to compete in the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. And I know you and your boyfriend, uh, Nick, are race walkers and you both hold uh, USA's number one race walkers. And you both had your Olympic debut together at the Tokyo Sapporo Olympic trials and won gold. So tell me, what I like how did you meet Nick how does it feel to be like in the same sport the same profession and do you feel like if there's some challenges with you guys both kind of like being in this sport together or do you feel like you both feed off of each other since you have that in common um I so having our Olympic debut together and just having him as a training partner and a life partner (laughs) has been amazing. Um, I, it's, I've never dated a elite athlete before him. Um, Mm I, I mean, my previous boyfriends might have been athletic, but they weren't athletes. Um, but, uh, so it's been like, so to have someone else who really understands the lifestyle of what it takes um, at the at this level is nice um, because he gets it, uh, you know, it's, it's a full-time job. It looks like where, you know, some people are like, what, you're only training for an hour and a half to three hours a day um, aerobically. But then we have like an hour of, of anaerobic training and then we have... Um, you got to decompress like all the mental, like the, the mental aspects. And then, um, of 
that aids in muscle recovery, um, mental wellness, everything, you know, so we, our job is to take care of our body and, you know, in other professions, you can get by, um, going to work, uh, with a cold, um, you could get by like, you know, being under the weather or very little sleep. Um, you can still get your job done. Um, that doesn't fly in elite athletics. Um, you get a cold, you, you just hindered a paycheck possibly Mm -hmm. because you might underperform. Um, you don't get the time you need for the rankings or you're, you missed the events. And so then that's the one paid event or, or it takes you out for a week of your opt of optimal training. It delays muscle recovery. So you're not getting the best of your training. So it's like, we have to do everything we can to make sure, um, you know, our body stays like fine tuned and and healthy. And I think that's like the benefit of going for the Olympics is Mm -hmm. it actually forces you to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, so dating, um, Nick has been like amazing, like having someone that, that totally understands what each other's like having to deal with and go through. And, um, financially we both have the same hardship. So maybe that's like this, the challenge is like we have, but we're a team is like, okay, what are we going to do? Like, like right now it's like, we got to start thinking about, you know, I'm 38. He just turned 30. It's like, we got to think about, um, I'm not, I'm not cool with like living with parents, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, so we're thinking, you know, what's our plan for getting our own place and with the little that we make and what kind of like, if we're pursuing, you know, we are pursuing right now, you know, as of, you know, any day can change, but today we are planning on 2024 Olympics. So as long for me, it's just as long as I can still like meet my other, um, you know, obligations, financial obligations and comfort of life, quality of life. And, um, as long as I can do that, then it's, you know, I've already achieved my goal of the Olympics. So now 2024 is to get my parents in the audience to the Olympics, you know, yes. you know so that's, that's my goal driving force there. It's just to be able to give back to my parents for all the time and energy and money that they put into supporting me growing up. So, um, I can't, I mean, I was terrified for um, like when they when they postponed the Olympics last year, I was so relieved because I knew we weren't ready to to have a safe Olympics. Um, We didn't have a vaccine yet. Um, You know, I knew if there was any country that could pull off a safe Olympics, it would be Japan. Um, But, you know, nobody was ready then. So I was actually really relieved because I value health first before any accolades, superficial accolades. Um, I was saddened because yeah, it's like, I I am getting older and I, you know, finally made this team or was likely to make this team. And, um, I was in the rankings, you know, so like I, cause there's two ways to qualify for the Olympics is ranking and then auto auto qualify. And, um, so this year when, you know, I was glad they postponed it instead of canceled it. And I was like, okay, yeah. So if everything comes together and if everybody does it right, like they get vaccinated or they like quarantine or whatever, like we could be out of this pandemic, like within a year, a year mm-hmm. and a half at most, you know, it didn't quite work out that way. Not but, at all. You know, <laughs> which was really, it's been really disappointing. It actually brought back. So in 2017, I, um, I got to wean off of my prescription for anxiety disorder mm-hmm. and I had been self-managing from 2016 until this year, August 22nd. Awesome. <laughs> um, I had to get back on um, my prescription because uh, the pandemic really like my disappointment and just like how, 
you know, we didn't do a very good job coming together as a community to, to defeat this. <laughs> so um, it's been kind of disappointing. Um, but uh, so the Olympics, like I was relieved that it's Japan that's that hosted it because they did a great job. I know that they value health and safety. They have to. They're on a small little island that has a ton of people on it. And um, so they're more equipped for it. They're more practiced for it. Um, they don't take things for granted as much as Americans do in a lot of the, you know, United Nation, other United Nation countries. Um, so I, um, but I was terrified because I knew Japan would do a good job, but I didn't trust the airline systems to get there. So um, I was scared that even if I got there safely, like my anxiety had come back full force beginning when all the fires were going on last year. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I'm still trying to manage it on my own and self-manage. Um, a lot of the ways that I self-manage is by staying active. But if you're secluded to just the house, um, we did stay active, but there was no real interruption to our um, our training, thanks to decathlon. Um, but, you know, like I also thrive off of scenery, you know, seeing mm. nature. And if, you know, like you're stuck to like just the roads, the neighborhood roads around the house or, I mean, we're lucky we got to even go outside, you know, like in Europe, they're like in these tiny little flats and they can't even go outside to get fined, you know, in some <laughs> parts of Europe. So I felt really gr grateful for that, but I was terrified. So when we weren't sure that Nick had made the team until July 5th, mm -hmm. um, I, that was the only time that both of us being successful and the number one in our country was a challenge because I knew he had made it. Um, he should have known, you know, he should have had that, like, he should have been able to celebrate along with me before July 5th mm -hmm. of, of his making it as well. But um, there was a doper that was on the list ahead of him and hadn't been removed. And so the, the rules are, and, you know, they can't, assume you're in that they have to go by rankings entirely so the name has to be removed before july 5th you know mm. <laughs> so it pushed him to 61 um uh, there was like two doors on the list um and then finally they got removed and um he was a he was moved, bumped up but during that those five day or like from june because our race was june 26th i knew i was going I was pretty sure he should be going, but it wasn't official. So then, you know, like the magazines aren't acknowledging, it, you know, like media is not acknowledging it. So like he was really depressed. Plus he had, we lost his father this year. And um, so it was just like, and we had like, we had taken the pandemic and quarantine seriously. So it's like, when his dad would invite us out to dinner, we didn't go because we needed to be plus it's like, if we got sick, we wouldn't, even if we made the Olympics, Japan would say, no, you can't come because you had COVID, you know, or something, you know, like, yeah. um, so, uh, we were really being cautious. So like losing him was a, a big, you know, it was just really hard, especially for Nick, because all those times that he could have had with his dad that we, you know, he's not going to get anymore. You know, so he had that. And then it's like the only thing to make it worth it was if he made the team and he knew mm -hmm. that that would be something that would really make his dad proud. So um, it was just like that was something that, you know, I really needed to make a team so that my parents, they're, they're quite a bit older than his parents, um, uh, you know, could see me make a team after all these years. And mm -hmm. he needed to make it so that his mom could see him make a team and you know, the spirit of his dad knows that he made it, you know, after all, you know, the hard work that he is, um, 
ingrained in, in him growing up. Like the influence of his dad is his work ethic definitely comes from his dad. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was just really hard those from June 26th to July 5th, because, you know, he went, he was a little, de- he went into some depression and, um, and then when we got that call, I think I shouted louder than he did. I was so <laughs> I jumped like a mile high. Like I, I guess. Was, yeah, like I was so excited. And, and then it was like, so it's like it made the whole because this year has been super hard. Like last year was way easier than this year. This year was mm. like, you know, our we woke up on January 1st to 16 dead or 17 dead chickens. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. Bobcat got to them. Um, so it was really depressing for us. Cause those were, we, we raised them from, they were like tiny little babies and the rooster was mm. just, but he was still a baby. He, um, we mm. named him Don snow. So maybe that wasn't good omen, but, um, you know, like he had not even gotten his cock yet, you know, like the, uh, uh, we were waiting mm-hmm. for it. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> Clarify that one. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, I really, I caught myself as I said it. (laughs) But, um, you know, first that happens. And then um, two days before his dad passed away, my godmother passed away unexpectedly. And um, both of those were unexpected. So it's just like this year really sucked outside of making the Olympic team. (laughs) So that was like, that's been our highlight of the year is just making that together. And it was like the redemption of just like, such a hard couple years, you know, yeah. the stress of the pandemic and the fire seasons going through, you know, like the global warming changing, you know, I feel like we, like California is supposed to be like this perfect weather place. And it's like these last few months in San Diego feel like we're in Indiana. Like yeah. somehow we got humidity, like when in, and we got, we got it's humidity. crazy mosquitoes in the middle of the day. <laughs> like, oh, wow. So weird. You know, it's just, um, it's just not, it's different. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so that was just really cool. And uh, to have him there to get, to be there together. And then it also just really made that plane ride so much more um, bearable. Cause I was really not, I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to accept going to the Olympics. Cause I wasn't sure I was going to be able to get through the plane ride without having like a really bad panic attack. Cause I'm, I wasn't taking any prescription for it. I was not mm. being able to manage it as well. Um, so I was like, I was really terrified of that plane trip. <laughs> <laughs> I, so he, he, he was able to hold my hand and get me through to where like that trip could have been so much. It could have been unbearable. And instead it's like a memory of a lifetime. And oh. the whole experience was great. Um, and you had each other. That's yeah. even more, that's even more, you know, putting you at, you're able to be more put at ease with the fact that you're going in there with your life partner as well. So it's not like you're alone, you know? Exactly. Exactly. So it just, it really made for, if this, yeah, it's just, um, I couldn't think of a better Olympic debut. Oh, I love that. So I know there's been so much controversy surrounding, you know, the Shikari Richardson situation and the use of marijuana. But what are your thoughts on the ban of marijuana use when it comes to athletics? Do you think it's something that should be that athletes should be allowed to do? Or do you feel like, you know, marijuana does kind of hinder your ability to, you know, be able to perform to your fullest potential when it comes to athletics? Um, so my opinion is not going to be popular with her fans. That's okay. <laughs> um, I, uh, for one, it doesn't really matter if it's um, banned or not. 
it was on the banned list and she knew not to do it during that time. And then she admitted she knew it was on the list and she chose to do it anyway. So what that tells me is a lot of people are like, well, at least she admitted it. And it's like, no, but we, you know what she also admitted is that she thinks rules don't apply to her. So what seems like it's just pot um, could be something more. It could have been a, a masking agent. So she's using it to mask a more serious drug. Um, it's, uh, you know, it does look suspect when she, her coach, um, is Dennis Mitchell. Um, he served a ban for testing positive for testosterone. Um, he, other people he's coached have also served ban. Justin Gatlin served two bans, a two-year one for amphetamines and a four-year one for testosterone. Um, Alan Johnson um, has not been caught for doping, but uh, he was the 96 gold medalist. But USADA, the United States Anti-Doping Agency, and WADA, the World Athletics um, Doping Agency, um, they were not founded. So WADA was founded in, on November 10th, 1999, and USADA was founded October 1st, 2000. So any gold medalist or silver medalist or bronze medalist before 1999 were likely not tested for doping. Um, so we just don't know. So... Um, but after that, like, it just doesn't look good. Cause like, I'm looking at the way she responded in her interviews. She has no remorse. Um, so yeah, pot is just pot, but you know, but it's, it's, it's how she responded where it's like, okay, so if you think at the Olympic trials, the one race that, you know, you're going to get tested and then you admit, I knew, and I did it anyway, how, what other things are you, would you do if you're not doing it already? Would you do and think the rules don't apply to you? Mm-hmm. Um, because it wasn't like, even though it's on the ban list, like there's other athletes who might smoke to um, calm their anxiety or I don't, mm-hmm. um, but there's other athletes that might do that. Um, they're not doing it at Olympic trials. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, she just had to wait a couple days. Yeah. And yeah. then do it. Um, also, it's uh, cannabis that's illegal. CBD is not. So if she wanted to use, you know, CBD to relax her from the shock of learning that her biological mother had passed away, um, it does say CBD is at your own risk. So it's not banned. But if it comes across as THC and you're testing, then that's your risk. However, it's not likely it's going to come across as the levels are too low. So if she's truly using medical CBD, then um, she probably wouldn't have tested positive. So she's actually using cannabis. So she had she had a choice. She could have used something better that um, something that wasn't going to test positive if she really felt she needed it. Um, But I don't know, like in that case, you know, uh, there was three athletes in our Olympic trials race, walk race, who all lost their fathers this year, um, all super close with their fathers. And none of them were smoking pot before their Olympic trials race. None of them are doing drugs before their Olympic trials race. Like they dealt with it by just putting their mind to the grind and, and being professional, you know, like, uh, uh, so that's where it's like, I don't care if it's, it, the thing is, is it what it is banned. So, um, you know, 
in the future, like I know caffeine was banned for a while. It's no longer banned. Maybe that's where marijuana is going to head to. But um, I honestly think that there's, uh, you know, the whole point of athletics when you're an inspiration at the Olympic level is to to um, to to represent health. And there's still a lot of studies that show that marijuana can hinder um, it can, you know, increase anxiety, increase depression. Um, it hinders cognitive skills um, and they're irreparable. Um, everybody I know who I had admired for being very intelligent people and um, people that I, I care about very much, but smoked a lot of pot. <laughs> I've mm-hmm. definitely noticed um, their IQ drop a lot over the years. <laughs> and mm-hmm. There's total difference, you know, like p- kids I knew and and college and in high school that smoked who were like top in their class um, are no longer, you would never guess it now talking to them. Um, They're not, not all of them are necessarily like low IQ, but they're not, they're not what they used to be, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's not healthy. So, um, so to me, it's like, if the job of USADA is to protect the athlete, which it is, the whole reason why it exists is for fair sport because the Olympic um, oath is to, you know, it's like, we promise to take part in these Olympic games, respecting and abiding by the rules and, mm-hmm. and in the spirit of fair play. So it's to make sure everybody's in fair play. And then it's also to protect the athlete. Like if you look at it, um, Shakari, she says she's number two in the world, but, um, with her one time that she did, and she's never been able to match it since. Um, but she's in between Flojo and Marion Jones. Mm-hmm. Flojo was likely doping. Um, she died in 1998 at my age, 38, um, from heart seizure in her sleep, um, which is a side effect of steroids, antibiotic steroids. Um, it was in 1998. That's a year before the WADA was, so she wasn't um, tested because WADA and USADA did not exist. So there wasn't drug testing going on then. Um, and then Marion Jones, we all know she disappointed all of us because we all thought, oh, cool. We have this strong woman who's this five-time gold medalist wrong. She was doping the whole time, you know? So to me, it's like the likelihood that she's clean in between these two people for that one race, I don't think it's high. I mean, this is just my speculations as a, you know, like I know this is going to cause a lot of controversy, but it just doesn't look good with like her coaching. She's sponsored by Nike. Nike has, um, you know, that I don't really trust anyone who wears the Nike logo outside of, uh, you know, when we make an Olympic team and we make an, a U.S. team, we all have to wear that logo. But people who are sponsored by it, like, I don't know, there there's alternative mm. motives, you know, like they, they don't care about the athlete's health. They just care about numbers. Mm. Um, you know, look at their commercials. You got Pastorius and Marion Jones. You I, like you go back and look up the, just you know, after you get off this, you know, like this podcast, like just look up the old Nike commercials. They're terrifying. Like, like Pastorius, they called him the bullet. And then he ends up like shooting his girlfriend, you know, mm-hmm. and then he could have been a great example and role model for um, Paralympians competing in the Olympic level. And instead he just ruins it all. And then, um, you know, it's like, and then Marion Jones is doing all this, like just being a fraud. Cause she makes herself look like she's a badass when she's really just 
the fake. And that's really disappointing because, and it's also bad because like, who knows, she might end up having a heart attack in her sleep because of the steroids she was doing. Um, that's not healthy. And so the whole point of USADA and WADA existing is to also protect the athlete from themselves. Um, so because we're, we are all human we're all going to go through challenges. We're all going to have, you know, loss in our life and, you know, as much of our triumphs and it's going to be hard transitioning from the different phases of our life and, um, the difference in, you know, what makes someone admirable and what's, what makes someone not is how we choose to, do we take accountability for it? Um, cause we're all going to make mistakes. Do we, um, who do we reach out to? Like how, you know, do we take responsibility and that's the difference. And, um, the whole, you know, so I think that, it's too easy for all of us to become our own enemy. And and we could, we could end up in a, you know, what starts off as a a passion and a healthy pursuit ends up becoming an obsession and unhealthy. And the whole point of USADA is to not only make sure that we're all, you know, and WADA, um, you know, in fair play, but it's to protect us from ourselves to protect our health. And, um, you know, like with pot, uh, at least cannabis, you know, like if, if it's, if it's hurting our, our mint, our cognitive skills, you, you can't make, um, you can't like make wise as wise decisions that are healthy for you as easily. Or, um, you know, if you're someone who already has anxiety disorder, it's only gonna, it's a temporary fix. You know, like I've, I've noticed that, um, when, you know, like I, I had tried pot in college and, um, and, you know, I was super depressed in college when I, when I walked away from the sport, mm-hmm. um, after I left sport, I was super depressed, super mm-hmm. depressed because my whole life was in athletics and that was how I like my job and my identity. And now I had to refine, you know, figure out what my identity is. So like a, what a lot of people go through after the Olympics, they're like, Oh, a lot of people get depressed after the Olympics. Like I already went through that in 2004, you know, mm-hmm. when I retired. Um, and I, and it's like, because it was like, oh my gosh, I'm having like this identity crisis. And, um, to escape that, it was actually a call for help for me. I, I kind of associate drugs as a call for help, mm-hmm. um, too. And, um, so with the Shikari thing to me, it's like, you know, instead of focusing on whether or not it should be legalized, let's actually like stop, pause and like ask her, really ask her, are you okay? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think there's some, you know, like I know I was having a lot of like that. She's only 22, 21. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was her age, like I thought I knew everything, like not everything, but I thought I had at least control over my life. You know, mm-hmm. um, we all make that mistake. We're like, oh yeah, you know, everything was, has been taken care of for us for, at that point, but we don't realize it. And so it's like, I just think that like, instead of like, it just, it's a call for help sometimes. Um, for me it was, and, um, it might make me fall asleep so that I don't have to think about my depression or anything like that. But then I am like super depressed for two weeks, even further depressed because what pot it does is it, it, it raises you up and then it twofold plummets you. You know, so it's really not healthy because it's it's just a mask. You know, mm. if it's not masking another agent, you know, it's masking um, the ability to to cope. You know, mm-hmm. to, to to really rely on yourself that you because we all have the tools. We have the tools to be able to um, to help ourselves. But and 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 then you know, 
CBD can help some people. Um, medical marijuana can help some people. It's not going to help everyone. And unless it's prescribed by a doctor, it's basically like if, you know, someone taking anxiety meds who weren't prescribed anxiety meds, you know, and that could be dangerous because it can cause a side effect of suicide thoughts, suicidal thoughts and everything like that, even in people who are prescribed. So it's like, it's, it really does. It is when you're taking a substance, it's, I think important um, when there's enough studies out there, you know, cannabis isn't new. Um, there's been a lot of studies on it um, at the, I think for an everyday person, it's not bad. Um, but for an, a professional athlete, um, it does hinder a lot. Um, for an everyday person, it can hinder a lot too, but I just, I I don't know. Like I just, you asked and I, I honestly think that like, it's good that it's banned because if anything, the, the perk of striving for the Olympics is that forces you Mm -hmm. to, if done right, to take care of yourself. Yeah. And, you know, I will say this now, I'm not against uh, the use of weed at all. I've tried it myself and I like a lot of other people. And I know that, you know, weed could be very useful and very helpful um, to people, but it's all in the way that you use it. And I know a lot of times nowadays, especially they are putting a lot of things in the weed that are having adverse effects on people. So that's why you have people that are a little when they're smoking weed, their their body is slowing down. So I understand why when it comes to sports, a lot of times they just want you. They don't want anything, no drug in your body. They just want you to go in there with a clear mind, you know, and and be able to focus on winning. That's all that you're supposed to do. Now, another thing as far as Shikari. Now, my thing is, what is her like? Who are the people that are around her that are helping her? Who's her outlet? Because I feel like she doesn't really have enough guidance either. And I feel like a lot of the arrogance that people saw with her um, in regards to the marijuana. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In regards to her marijuana use is due to the fact that a lot of people were hyping her up. A lot of people were so excited for her because she is, she has a story that's so unique. You know, she came from nothing and here she is resilient. You know, her mother passed away and all of that. And so a lot of people were just kind of comparing her situation to Michael Phelps, which, you know, are completely two different things. You know what I'm saying? Um, and then also, so I, I feel like a lot of it is she took a lot of that to her head. So that's why you hear a lot of the arrogance. But another biggest thing, biggest factor in this whole situation is it's a whole other country. So there's a lot of people talking about, well, we should just allow it in the Olympics, you know, and, and everywhere else, especially in Tokyo. But it's like, you can't tell Tokyo <laughs> how they yeah. want to do, you know, their yeah. situation when it comes to drugs. This is not the USA, you know? Oh, I, yeah. like, it's completely like even, even prescriptions for anxiety was not allowed on the plane. Wow. So wow. it's like, you had to get like a special certificate from the Japanese government because there are certain things like, fortunately I was not taking, I didn't, I wasn't taking anything. Um, uh, so I didn't have to worry about that. I did, I did carry around, um, uh, what's it called? Ativan, just in case I had a panic attack. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never take it. Cause I'm actually like part of, um, 
for a lot of people with anxiety disorder is like, we won't even take the stuff. Like we don't want to put anything in our body because we're scared. Like we don't, we don't know. <laughs> we don't like not being in control. So yeah. um, anything that's put in the control of something else, like terrifies at least me and a lot of other people with anxiety disorder. So we won't even take that. So yeah. um, it's mostly just a peace of mind, but, um, but anything like for regular, like management, it was not allowed in Japan. So um we can't control that, you know, like it, yeah. there's drugs that are criminal, like they're criminally like in parts of Middle East, you can for for pot, if you're caught with pot, like you're you're incarcerated and like maybe get your finger cut off, you know, yeah. like what you know, it's yeah. like it's like, whoa, like that's just extreme. Yeah. But um, it's a whole other yeah. country, though. So they their the rules don't apply the same way they do in the U.S. as they do in Tokyo. Exactly. And that's yeah. another thing that people need to keep in mind. And, you know, the fact that she was a black woman going into the Olympics, you know, that was another great honor as well. And the only the other part of that is like there was another, I believe, Olympic runner that was saying, well, you know, a lot of people are also forgetting about the other black Olympic Exactly. Runners that are going into the Olympics. You have yeah. Delilah, you have Sydney, you have, I mean, there's so many, like you, the list goes on Brittany. You like have mm -hmm. ton, like tons of people. Exactly. That so are admirable, that didn't have to smoke pot the day of their race or the day before their race, you know, like, yeah, yeah I mean, I'm not like you, like, I don't think I'm not opposed to people who feel if they need it, like to take care of their mental wellness or just to relax or whatever, if they need it, but know when to do it. You know, like, yeah, you could have yeah. done it two days and, later and, and would have probably been fine. <laughs> yeah. And she needs like I said, I feel like, you know, Shikari needs an a, a outlet, a, a, a support system. She needs something she because does. clearly and the people around her are no are not good for her because, no, you know, this would have never happened. Some are other people who come from a, a system where they don't have a lot of support and where yeah. they end up in the doping system or whatever. So that's not like the mentors are not the best examples of, of mentorship. <laughs> and yeah. like, you know, the coaches, I don't think a healthy one to have. Um, but at the same time, I totally understand, like if that's all you have access to, or you don't know who else is available, sometimes mm -hmm. you just get stuck with a someone you don't prefer to be your coach, but ends up having to be your coach. Cause you don't, you have this talent, but no, you, especially at that, like, I'm 38 and until Nick Christie, like I had a, a not, I had a coach who I did not prefer to have, um, but there was no other option in America. Um, I was ostracized by the only coach that was Olympic level coaching um, wow. since I was a youth. So um, I didn't know who else was available until I met um, Yacinto. Um, and that was all because Nick, you know, like he, he goes to different training camps and, um, met, you know, he knows a lot of the coaches from all over the world. And, um, so I went to a training camp in 2019 with him in Spain and I met Yacinto and I just loved his program. And, um, it's a very honest program. And he's like, cares about the athlete, the person, not just athlete, but the person. And, you know, like, I really liked that. And I had, um, so I'm really grateful that I found him, but you know, in Shikari's instance, maybe she doesn't know what else is there. Maybe no other coaches made themselves available to her. Um, so, you know, he does have a good resume of producing, um, athletes who, um, you know, make gold. And, um, we don't know if they're all clean, but you know, a couple of them have not, um, you know, we don't know if Alan Johnson was clean, but as far as we know, guilt, you know, you're innocent until proven guilty. So he wasn't tested. So he is innocent. Um, that's one of his athletes, you know, like, so 
you know, that might just be, that's the only person she knows that has made themselves available. And, um, you know, it's like what Nick told me, I was waiting for somebody else to approach me. And he said, a good coach is not going to poach you from another coach. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's like, if you look at it, like Justin Gatlin didn't leave Dennis Mitchell until, you know, he realized, oh, I mean, this doesn't look good, you know, for me. And um, it's only causing me more problems than not. So he leaves him and um, maybe he was able to find somebody else or, you know, he just took that risk because it was just causing more problems than that. Um, you know, you have Galen Rupp who left Salazar and um, Jordan Hassey who left Salazar because of that whole scandal. And, but, you know, a lot of times you're the people who are coached by Salazar and, and the Dennis Mitchells or whatever, they're going through a program that's completely mandated and commanded by Nike. So you're just getting whoever you get through that avenue of Nike and the NCAA mm. system. So they don't have any choice. There's not a lot of choices. Um, or they think that's the best choice because they're told that, you know? And um, so I agree with you. I think that she doesn't have the best examples around her. The people that you're supposed to be able to rely on at the, at her age, especially is your coach and mm. your and your professors and mm-hmm. like the, the mentors in your life, that's who we're looking up to. For example, I mean, I was completely disappointed when I went to high to college because I totally trusted Claudia Wildey, my youth coach. She valued my health, um, you know, as much as my athletic success. Um, I, I trusted my dance instructor. I trusted all my soccer coaches, um, my teachers, you know, that I trusted my teachers wanted the best for all their students. And, you know, and um, I, I witnessed any students who came from um, struggling homes or like had less advantages. Uh, I witnessed teachers staying after school, like giving them extra like attention, you know, like I, I'm fortunate, like Vacaville has a really good school system. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I saw that, you know, and I also living in the Bay Area is like, you know, one of the most diverse areas in, in the nation. Mm-hmm. Um, like we're very fortunate to be from California. I, I, you're from California, right? Yes, <laughs> like, the Bay oh, Area, like, like you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, if you're from the Bay Area, like you said. So it's like we're fortunate. We're kind of spoiled because, yeah. you know, there's just a lot of more support and understanding and like reality, you know, like mm-hmm. an experience. Um, so uh, I just think, yeah, yeah. Like at, at her age, she's in college. She's she can only trust what she's being told. And mm-hmm. um, I think that in the college system, there's not a lot that any of us can trust. <laughs> yeah, which is sad. Um, So, yeah, like it's unfortunate, Um, you know, hopefully like the attention that she's getting can open doors to better mentors. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you have uh, I was watching like last night when I was working out. um, Oh, my gosh, I feel so embarrassed because she's the person who did the poems at the inauguration. Oh, Um, my God. Oh, oh my gosh. Jesus. I know her name is on like the tip of my tongue. I know. I feel so bad because she, you know, she's phenomenal. But um yes, I was yes. listening to her story. They're interviewing her and stuff. And where was I going with this? Oh yeah. So her mentor is Oprah Winfrey. And you can totally tell because of mm-hmm. the way she talks, how she responds in interviews. She's like very um and she said she used to have a speech problem, which I used to, too. So it's mm-hmm. like, oh, you know, it's like it depends. It's like sometimes like, you know, Shikari was at the Met. So maybe there she can meet some other people who um, can be better examples or like, you know, Nick was able to introduce me to um, a really good, um, healthy coach environment. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, hopefully Shakari can find something like that um, mm-hmm. through those avenues, because sometimes like the people who can be healthy for you are not even in your sport it, it, or even related to it. It could be someone outside, you yeah. know, um, Oprah is not a poet. She's a writer. She's not a poet, but she's she's that mentor. Hi, she got so bad. I can't remember her name. Um, Amanda, it's, it's Amanda Gorman. It's Amanda <laughs> Gorman. Yeah, Amanda <laughs> Gorman. So yeah, so it's like you know, but that's someone who's a good mentor for her. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm just like trying to think of like the different people who have been able to rise through. You know, to keep success even through. Like, okay, look at like uh, Simone Biles. You know, yeah. Um, to be able to get through those. Um, those hard pressures. She has a lot of pressure on her at a very young age. She was like a kid, you know? Yeah. So, you know, like she was younger than Shikari. So, um, and she is like the Michael Phelps. She is already making, you know, Shikari made one gold. Um, Phelps is making several golds, same with Simone Biles. And um, so there's a lot of pressure. Like she's like, what, like 14 when all that started and mm-hmm. it's been ongoing since then. It's like, yeah, no wonder, you know, like I, I'm so proud of, you know, like it's, it's good to take mm-hmm. that stand. And she's like, I got to protect my body. And if I'm having yeah. the yips and I can't trust that my body's going to not like perform, you know, complete that task. And then that pressure that, you know, even though she submits her own um, routine, there's still that pressure that she has to, because people know she can do it. She Mm -hmm. has to submit this routine. That's like all of the routines are dangerous for gymnasts, but her routine was especially dangerous. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just, um, you know, but she has some good, she has some, the difference I think for her and Shikari is I think she has a little bit better support, a lot better support system. And so um, hopefully Shikari can find that though with her network of people that she is. Um, It's overwhelming though, because she is young and she's having all these adults thrown at her, like the adult life thrown Mm -hmm. at her. And she's supposed to, yeah, she has that spotlight and she's supposed to like, and I think that it's like, sometimes people say, act like you are until you become it. So then maybe that's some of her strategy is like, oh yeah, I'm the best in the world. That that arrogance is like, if I say this, uh, it'll be easier to mm-hmm. be among, you know, be socializing with all these people who right now are better than her. Um, she's I think it's, I think them. it's, I definitely think it's also a defense mechanism too. You know, yeah, she you have all these away. Yeah. People off. Like I used to do this sometimes as a kid. Um, if I didn't want to talk about something, like I would just be really ornery. And, you know, like there's a quote by, uh, uh, who is it? I think it's actually Nietzsche, um, but <laughs> mm-hmm. where it's um, um, to talk a lot is another means of disguise. Mm-hmm. And uh, that really like spoke to me in college because um, usually if I hate talking a lot, but mm-hmm. usually if I am, it's either to quiet my own like stress or it's to keep people away. I don't want to, um, like, it's because I have a lot of things going on and I don't want people to focus on that. So it's almost like I'm, I'm talking about things so that they don't realize there's other things on my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe, you know, or it's tiring them out with my talking that like they leave me alone. 
so that I have Mm -hmm. my own space. So like, maybe that's what she's doing in a different way where it's like, oh, this arrogance is going to keep people away so that she can just focus on just what she needs to do. Um, You know, when she gets on that starting line, you know, people are less likely wanting to talk to her. So then she's like, oh, cool. That's what I want because then Mm -hmm. I can just focus on what I need. I don't know. Like there's different strategies. Yeah. (laughs) Who knows what's going through her mind completely. I'm not her. But I know that for me, I, I have done things in, in, you know, in trying to cope with my own challenges where it's like, sometimes I just need my own space. So it's like, I almost like being ostracized because it's like, <laughs> I can just focus on what I need to focus on yeah. um, or answer when I'm ready to answer the stuff. Yeah. Or, um, now I don't, I'm not someone who approached things with arrogance, but you know, I did, I do do um, promotional modeling with um, costuming, you know, where I'm dressing up in high, you know, like what I call uh, hot couture, um, <laughs> my version of hot couture, creative hot couture. Um, mm-hmm. And I used to always wear a wig. Mm-hmm. Um, mainly yes. I don't know how to do my own hair, but. <laughs> and you have 50, you have a huge wig collection. You got 50 over 53. So do we got names for all these wigs? Do you I wear know. them from racing? I know. But I, I, I was on a podcast with Allie Rally on the run and she, I had never seen Shit's Creek. And she uh-huh. this freak. And oh my gosh, like <laughs> it made me laugh because she's like, you got to see it. Because when you see her wig collection, it just made me think of you when I read your bio. And like, I, I thought I was like, oh my gosh, like mine don't hang on the walls like that. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that's why I do have the wigs because I'm very bad at doing my own hair. And, oh, and then too. being an athlete, it's like, we don't have time. Like yeah. we can style it in the morning and it's like all for not because then as soon as we work out, it's done, you know, mm-hmm. like, <laughs> So, exactly. Um, so I had those wigs, but the other reason why I had those wigs is like, as soon as I put that on, I can kind of pronounce myself. I'm somebody else. Yes. Um, so maybe that's, what's going on with Shikari is when she's putting on that arrogance and stuff, like in that moment, she's somebody else. And that Mm -hmm. helps distract her from anything else that could be stressful because if she creates her own stress, she's in control. Mm. um so that's just another way of like a control thing like so like for me the 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 wigs is another way of like controlling my environment where it's like okay well if I'm if I'm someone else then uh it's just a way to like it's it's a very different like angle you know Mm because it's not the same (laughs) but Mm because when I'm putting on that wig it's like not to like become someone else it's just to feel like um I can take a break from my everyday routine Mm. Um, and, you know, just kind of spice things up a little. So, or make things entertaining, you know? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. I I love that, honey. I I love playing in wigs. I like to switch up my hair too. So I totally understand where you're coming from with that. (laughs) Yeah. So you have about, I guess, you know, Shakari and I and you have in common, like we like our wig play, you know, (laughs) exactly. We like to be slayed to the gods. We just don't like to slay it ourselves. So, (laughs) (laughs) so you have about 14 national championship titles and represented the USA various times and made it to the Olympics. Do you feel like you've truly found your life's purpose or do you feel like you're still on the hunt to find what that is? Uh, you know, I think that life purpose is something that we all are figuring out constantly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so yes, I think I'm on the right path. Um, I, but it doesn't mean that this is 
like how it's presented as the purpose doesn't mean that's how the purpose is formulated for eternity. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know how to word it well, but um, all I know is um, how I, you know, what I feel I know, because none of us know anything um, is since I was little, it's like whenever I had a deja vu, what that means to me is that I'm on the right path. Mm. Um, so, um, I know that for 12 years, I didn't have deja vu. Um, mm. I wasn't having them a lot and I knew there was just, I just couldn't find like, what was it? Like everything I tried, every avenue was like, I wasn't having them. As soon as I returned to athletics and started pursuing that, um, and, and this way healthier perspective, um, I started having deja vus again. Mm. And so it's like, yeah, because like, there's this theory, like I'm, when I was born, my mom said that I used to like stare off into space. And so she, she thought, um, you know, my veil wasn't lifted yet. So, mm. um, she was brought up, um, Christian and my dad. So like, I'm not practicing, but in neither of them anymore, but, um, you know, however you're brought up, it can influence some of the way you think. Mm-hmm. And so for her, um, she, uh, she was like, yeah, you're, you know, like when you're, it's believed that, um, in the Christian religion, like as soon as you're born, your veils lifted so that you don't remember heaven. You don't remember like, whatever like so it's believed that like you see what your life's supposed to be and then um and then when you're once as soon as you exit the womb you're not supposed to remember what that is and then you kind of just figure out what your purpose is as you go even though you, you your purpose is predetermined mm-hmm. um so if, if we use that theory then mm-hmm. she was saying like i think your veil was lifted late so that's why you're staring off into space because you're you're still like not all the way here <laughs> so, mm-hmm. like, and so um and people used to like kind of like call me space cadet in college, <laughs> like space out. And um, so I truly think like I I believe like in energies and um, you know that whole intuition. Everything's made up of particles and, and atoms, you know, and like mm-hmm. like molecules like bouncing off of each other. So it's like um, you know I don't know if I like if. You know, I, I get scared to use those words, you know, but it's like if we're reincarnated or if we have these things like then we have these experiences that um, maybe that's what deja vu is, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> so now I'm like getting into like, you know, <laughs> pseudoscience and whatever. But um, but to me, it's like if I'm having those deja vus, it's meaning that like I'm familiar and um, I've, I, I've been here before or I'm supposed to do this. Like this is where I'm supposed to be. That was mm-hmm. my sign. And I don't know if there is any weight to it, but I know that the happiest I ever am in my life and the most secure that I feel is when I'm having them. Um, mm. And the times when I'm at like struggling the most in my life is when I'm not having them. Mm. Um, so I don't know if any of that makes sense. I it makes perfect sense. Crazy, <laughs> it does. And it's like reassurance when you're having those deja vu moments that, okay, even if you feel like you haven't found your life's purpose, you're on the path to finding whatever that is for you. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, other people might show you what it is, you mm-hmm. know, like if you don't necessarily like you have a feeling, but you don't really know, like for me, I don't necessarily know what it is. I have a feeling for it, but I'm not sure what it's called or I'm not sure exactly what it is until like others feedback point you in that way and kind of like shed light on it. Mm-hmm. So it's like for me, it's like some like the eating disorder. Like I, I think I just assume that most people go through the same thing that I'm going through, you know, like, I don't think I'm special, you know? So like, <laughs> so if someone's saying, Hey, you share your story that can help someone else. And then I pause to think, you know what? My knowing other people's story helped me. So 
oh, okay. So then that's part of my purpose is to be one of those people who just say, hey, don't be afraid to share it. And the only way to show people not to be afraid is to not be afraid myself. And then just talk like, mm-hmm. um, same with the, you know, I think, and the more you talk about it, the less odd it is, you know, mm-hmm. like I, if that makes sense, like, so like with um mental, mental, I don't like saying disorders because it's like, <laughs> like challenges, you know, like if we have, like I have anxiety disorder, like some people, like to me, when people are like, and maybe it's because I'm a race walker, because some people are like, Oh, you know, race walking, what made you so comfortable with it? And to me, it's like, how are you not comfortable with race walk? It's so (laughs) a part of my normal life that like, I don't even think of it as odd. And I started Mm -hmm. thinking of that. Like, if you look at wrestling, you look at football, like, how is that not seen? Like we only think of football as normal because we're used to seeing it. But if you're an alien has never seen football, (laughs) men in tights and (laughs) each other's butts, like it's like this and ramming into each other and causing each other concussions and then celebrating, doing a happy Oh my God. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah. So it's like the only thing that's like, like becomes normal is the more you are just used to it. You know, yeah. like, when we talk about it, the more it's like, oh, yeah, I'm just familiar with it. Familiarity makes things not weird. Yeah. So, um, you know, like so like mental challenges like with um, or disorders like with depression and anxiety, all of us have some type of it, you know, like whether it's um, PTSD or depression or anxiety or um, panic or whatever it is, eating disorder, um, whatever this challenge is, um, it's it's not abnormal. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, um, it's only seen as, um, abnormal because not enough people talk about it. You know, everybody Mm -hmm. knows about a a broken arm and what we need to do to fix it. But think about it when cancer, AIDS, um, COVID, you know, like all these things, when they were new, nobody knew how to treat them. Now there, we have a better idea how to treat, um, HRV. We have Mm -hmm. better ideas of how to treat cancer. So people can Mm -hmm. survive better, you know, even pregnancy, like there was a higher death rate in pregnancy than we have now back in the day, because they just Mm -hmm. didn't know as much. Mm -hmm. So the more, you know, they've, the reason why we're able to have the successes we've had in, in the medical fields is because we've talked about it. We've explored it. We've openly talked about it, shared our research with everybody else, um, which, um, with the, depression, anxiety, all the, like the mental disorders that has not been talked about as much. If anything, it's been hidden more, or it was used as a tool in military to exploit. Um, so then it's just like, the more we talk about it, the more people can understand it. And the more we understand stuff, anything, the better we can address things and, um, learn ways to, um, live with it or to manage it. Mm-hmm. Just like, just like we learned how to manage, you know, living with cancer, manage living with HIV, manage with living with COVID, manage, you know, any of those things. Mm-hmm. Manage mm-hmm. living with the flu, because that used to kill a lot more people than it does. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let everybody know where you have in the works, if you have anything in the works coming up and how they can connect with you. Um, so you can, um, I'm best at, you know, at the best way to connect with me is through Instagram. I'm at Robin Design. R-O-B-Y-N, D-E-S-I-G is in good in. So like designing things. So I know it's like, I'm an athlete, but I go by Robin Design. (laughs) (laughs) Designing to me because it's a dance. Um, So Robin Design on Instagram. I am on Facebook, but I, um, if you know, um, 
I'm, I'm easily more easily, um, accessible by Instagram. Um, but on Facebook, I'm at dream in gold, uh, D R E A M the letter in gold. Um, and yeah, also on Twitter, same name as Instagram, but Instagram's the way to go with me. <laughs> yeah. I, oh, I also it- have my website. Uh, anything like what, like I put everything I do, um, and what Nick does on my website, www.walkinrobin.com. Love it. With the, just the letter in. <laughs> Wonderful. I want to thank you so much, Robin, for joining me today. It's been a pleasure to have you on and talk to you and hear all about, you know, your successes. And I hope you'll be able to come on the show again and talk more about your other championships that I know that you're going to be having coming up. So, oh my gosh, it's been such a pleasure, Kyra. Like, I know I've taken a lot of <laughs> We were oh, you're to talk for an hour. Thank you. When but it's good, I really it's good. Enjoyed- um, I really enjoyed your last podcast. I actually put Thank a plate you. of salt under my bed yesterday oh! because, <laughs> because I've been really stressed because of the anxiety, you know, mm-hmm. returning and well, it never goes away, but you know, like the management and I was like, you know, I'm going to try it. And it was almost immediate. Like, I don't care if it's like, if it's psychological or not, it works because mm-hmm. my, my mood just like changed so much. Yeah. Cause you know, like it's supposed to like get rid of the energies and stuff, yes. like the bad energy and negative thoughts. And I was just yeah. like, I'm going to try this. Like, and it like, yeah. So thanks. Like, <laughs> absolutely. And you know what else you can do for that too? So on YouTube, there's like these Hertz meditations and they have them for like different genres. So like, say you want to open your um, sh- uh, chakras or whatever, or they have ones for like anxiety and stress where it helps you de-stress and takes away the anxiety. So when you're sleeping at night, along with the salt, you can put on the Hertz meditation music and put it, you know, kind of low so you're not distracted while you're sleeping. And that also helps a lot more too to get rid of that stress and anxiety. So, yeah. Is that Hertz? Like H, can you spell that? Yeah, H-E-R-T-Z. H-E-R-T. Oh, yeah, I spelled it correctly. Awesome. Well, thanks yeah, again. Absolutely. You know, always looking for ways. You know, we're learning. You can learn from everyone. So <laughs> yeah. just balance everything and use anything that's like there, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And well, for everybody else, I want to thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Vibe Selection. I am your host, Kyra. And you can follow me on IG at I am Kyra Mahoney. Or if you'd like to support the Vibe Selection podcast, you can do so at www patreon.com slash vibe selection or if you like to get any vibe selection merch you can get that at www.teespring.com slash vibe selection stay safe stay healthy out there i'll see you all next week bye thank you for joining vibe selection with kyra come vibe out with us again next time and hear the latest on today's hot topics Find us on Instagram at I am Kyra Mahoney or donate at www.patreon.com slash vibe selection.